as bar heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege and honor of gathering together as family on a day that you've ordained for us, for our learning. Thank you for inserting truth into our souls, our minds, so that we might have understanding, Father, so that we ultimately can bring glory to you and be pleasing in your eyes. Father, we pray for those that are not with us this morning, that earnestly desire to be here. We pray for them and we want them to know that we're with them in spirit. We pray for those also that are still lost in this world, of course. Pray that it, before it's too late that you humble them. We know that you're the only one that can truly evangelize them and perform that miracle in them. Again, to your glory, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality. <clears throat> we just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, part 23, this past week. Um, was dominated by another angle into the deceitfulness of sin up here on the board we started talking about the conscience i'm gonna have to find where i can speak so i might get quiet um we started talking about our conscience the human conscience and uh, specifically and it's really two it's a contraction of two words con and science which really means with and knowledge so conscience means with knowledge so knowledge is the baseline, and that's what we're going to continue to see in Holy Scripture, that it's not the conscience that, um, even though our conscience does the due diligence of, of uh, discerning between right and wrong, and therefore convicting us, sometimes haunting us, sometimes encouraging us, it's actually the knowledge that is wrong about us. It's actually our minds that are defiled, and everything sort of sprouts from there. Um, but nonetheless, this is the angle into Holy Scripture that the Spirit's had us on this past week. Again, con plus science equals with plus knowledge. It means to know oneself. A person's good conscience is based on data. It is not the source of data. Rather, it is especially equipped to judge right from wrong. Think about it. What the world wants to tell you, wants to, you to think is that it's the source of data. You know how you feel. I feel, you know, it feels right. Who cares? Well, my conscience tells me it's right. Who cares? Your conscience may be misinformed. That's the whole point. But that's where the world wants to operate up here with emotions and, you know, uh, you know consciences that feel something's right. Who cares if something uh, seems right to the conscience? Is it based on good data? This is what counts. Not even your conscience, because your conscience is a slave to this. That's what the Holy Spirit's teaching us. And this is how we get deceived, because the world wants you to think that, well, as long as your conscience is good, you're in good shape. Yeah, if it's based on truth, it's great. But if you, if you have a, quote, good conscience based on bad data, uh, you have a problem. On Thursday, the Spirit wove this new concept into our mainstream studies Again, namely the human conscience, and particularly how sin can go about tricking us. Even though we have a powerful faculty 
for deciphering right and wrong within us. God has afforded each one of us a conscience. What we quickly realize upon self-examination is that even we believers can be duped for a time. And once the truth is inserted into our souls, when we look back, our good conscience bears witness against our previous deeds. Ever done that? Look back and say, yeah, that was wrong. It, in the moment, I thought it was right. Like, I thought I was doing the right thing. And then you learn something here and go, oops, guess I was wrong. This is the power of the book. So once the truth is inserted, when we look back, sometimes we can reflect and say, oops. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot about the conscience. Uh, we can learn an awful lot about what the Bible has to say about this thing. And when we learn about something fundamental like the conscience, we can start seeing the nuances of how the deceitfulness of sin operates. Like I just alluded to. Hey, let's just focus on whether you feel something's right. It's always about feelings now, right? Well, do you, does it feel right? Oh, it, it does. It feels right. Yeah, but you know nothing about Holy Scripture. That's why it feels right to you. And you call yourself a Christian. But it's not right. It's not pleasing to God. That's the problem. The world wants you to focus on the wrong topics. The wrong, it doesn't go all the way to the root system. It's how you feel, you know. Well, how do I feel about this thing? So the Apostle Paul, uh, think about his audiences and how they might have been confused. Uh, we've learned over the years. He wrote a lot about conscience, so we're going to do a brief survey on the topic this morning. As we do so, please keep in mind the reason for this exercise in the middle of this series titled The Deceitfulness of Sin. We're trying to figure out the nuances. We understand the infrastructure, if you would, not to be technical, but we understand the infrastructure of the conscience, the mind, knowledge, understanding, these kinds of things, how they sort of put together. Um, then we can see how sin can exploit certain angles into that structure. Go to Romans 2.14. Romans 2.14. And so that's the exercise we're in the middle of. We're going to continue here this morning. <clears throat> Romans 2, verse 12. <clears throat> now, we're not going to talk uh, an extreme amount this morning about the context of each verse. Uh, there's enough that we already know about the context here to shed light. So I'll, I'll explain here. In Romans 2.14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, in other words, not even having the so-called capital L law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, in their thoughts, thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. That's the basic definition of the conscience, right? What's right and wrong? The conscience bearing witness in their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What Paul's saying is even people without the capital L law knew right from wrong because God put it there. God put a certain baseline knowledge in every human being. It's why even unbelievers don't run around killing each other. Because they know it's wrong. 
So their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Again, that's our sort of baseline up here on the board. Their conscience bearing witness. God has inserted a conscience in mankind that innately responds to God's law. You know, the, the general law, the law of civilization, let's call it of government, of divine institution, however you'd like to look at it, from whatever angle you'd like to take theologically into it, God has inserted a conscience in mankind that innately responds to God's law. For example, except for psychopaths, uh, all people, believers and unbelievers, know it's wrong to murder another person. You don't have to be a believer to know it's wrong to murder someone. This doesn't exist in the animal kingdom, which functions off of instincts. They don't have a conscience, in other words. We have a conscience. We've been given data. We have a conscience against that data. God says it's wrong, therefore it's wrong. So we don't murder each other. We don't have any problem killing animals, obviously, because we eat them, but you see the point. That's a different point of doctrine that God has given each and every person. So again, their conscience bearing witness, God has inserted this thing into man that innately responds to God's law. So immediately from this passage alone, we have an outstanding feature of human conscience. We have an outstanding feature of human conscience, really, that it's decidedly, or it's the thing that decides between right and wrong. And it's because of this singular feature that God is able to say that unbelievers are without excuse. Go to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. See, if he didn't put a human conscience in everyone and then reveal absolute divine truth to everyone, he would be unjust. And so what he's really saying in Romans 18 is, hey, one eighteen, I've given you data and a conscience to know better. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress, remember I've given you this a ton of times, it's an active voice, it means they're involved in it personally, who suppress, and it's present tense, which means they're doing it all the time, who suppress, again, present tense, active voice, habitual choosing in view, the truth, which means they have the truth. Do you understand? They have the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. Who put it there? God did. For God made it evident to them, you see? For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, they have the data, they have the conscience to arrive at a right conclusion about God. What the Bible teaches us is that God, in all fairness to his own desire to judge righteously, and to mankind for that matter, is able to judge due to the fact that every person ever born knows of him, has the data, the baseline data about God, and then knows that it's right, that means they have a conscience, knows that it's right to accept him as our sovereign creator. Otherwise, he'd be unjust, sentencing really anyone 
to the lake of fire. And so we know that God has put both of these things function, functioning well in each person. And so for unbelievers, it's not an issue of their conscience failing. You see, this is the problem when people say, I feel like I know God. He's just not yours. I'm a Buddhist. God to me is whatever I feel. They're lying. They're lying. For unbelievers, though, it's not an issue of their conscience failing. It's what they do with their convictions. They say no. They say, I don't want that God. I want to speculate. I want to invent. I want to imagine another God. And it may be themselves even. They may be their, their own God. I mean, that's what Oprah teaches. God's within you. Right? And everybody's born good. You ever hear that story? Everybody's born uh, naturally good. And everybody can be a God unto themselves. And let's all accept this. That's a lie. That's a person who suppresses the truth. So for unbelievers, it's not an issue of their conscience failing. It's what they do with their convictions. What the conscience produces, they say no. They suppress it. As we've learned in the past, atheists, among others, must actively suppress the truth that their own conscience convict them of. <laughs> By the way, the Holy Spirit is right there also with the gospel in tow. All right, let's continue on now with our brief survey. Go to Romans 13.5. Romans 13.5. Romans 13.5. Again, just a brief survey this morning on the conscience. Romans 13.5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to governing authorities, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Again, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection to governing authorities in view, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Otherwise your conscience is going to haunt you, because it's the right thing. Our consciences know that it is right to obey government authority. We know that. Next, go to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7. <clears throat> we get into a nuance here. Um, even among believers, 1 Corinthians 8, 7. And what before we even get into this, what what Paul is getting at here, and what we're going to speak of uh, this morning, is that even among believers, there's differences in individuals' consciences based on knowledge. You might be able to say, like Paul's saying, I can eat whatever I want. Who cares if it was sacrificed to an idol or something? I don't care. It's food from God. But if you've got some kind of weird taboo that you grew up with. Maybe you're saved, but you're still dragging along this, along this bad data. You know, you're brought up in some cult or something. You know, like some of you came from a cult called Catholicism, and you're still dragging around religion and guilt and condemnation, and you can't 
get over the fact that you've done wrong things. You know, the, what do they call them, the venal sins or something like that? I don't know. They make stuff up anyway, so whatever. Some of you are still religious, and you wonder why you're still miserable. It's because you still have bad data in there. You've been lied to for years and years and years, and you're still dealing with bad data. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. So there's nuances among believers even. That's what Paul's getting at here. However, not all men have this knowledge, you see. But some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. You see, bad data results in a bad conscience or a defiled data results in a defiled conscience. Let me help you up here on the board. Their conscience being weak is defiled. Their conscience is weak because the data set has recently changed and their confidence is affected. That should be A, I think. Doubt seeps in as a result also, uh, which is a normal part of reorientation to truth. Again, their conscience being weak is defiled. Their conscience is weak because the data set has recently changed and their confidence is affected. They're still, un they're still unsure. There's doubt um, going on in their souls. And so when they see food that was sacrificed to idols, they have a problem with it. They stumble a little bit. They're like, I don't think I can eat that. I don't think I can do that. Why not? How the heck can Paul eat it? No problem. Like, And they're stumbling over there because Paul understands has more data at that point than they do. And so Paul's saying we have to understand as stronger believers that some believers are still weak. And weakness really when it comes to the spiritual life is all about knowledge, what you have inserted in your soul. What do you know and have confidence in that's true? This is the only place. If you don't have this backing up what's in your soul, forget it. You're going to have doubts. That's why I keep telling you, read your Bible. Again, verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, you see. They don't have the knowledge, and you see the result. Their conscience being weak is defiled. So we have there is the master-slave relationship even between knowledge and the conscience. Paul continues by expressing the truth, verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. That's truth, which is why he could eat it. Some didn't have that truth, so he's teaching them that truth, so that they too may not stumble. Verse 9, But take care that this liberty of yours, now he's speaking to the more uh, mature, if you would, or the stronger believers, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. We have a responsibility to these people. You were there once, remember? For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In other words, not only do you have more knowledge about eating food 
He's also teaching you to have more knowledge about the dynamics of strength and weakness in the spiritual life. So you don't stumble. Have you ever gotten mad at somebody? This I always think of Scott on this one. Have you ever gotten mad at somebody? <laughs> it's so funny. I just picture your face when you're teaching it. You know? We learn something today and tomorrow we're like, what's wrong with you people? You look back and get mad at people for doing the same thing that you just did yesterday. We have to remember that we're at different stages and that even though your conscience is clear, theirs might not be. And if you do something from a position of strength to make them stumble, Christ has a problem with that. So there's another piece of data there for our conscience to deal with as a mature con conscience. So again, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This passage is also a very important passage to fully digest for us because it reveals the dynamics between those with knowledge and those with, let's call it, residual false data. It's also one reason why we mustn't rage against the ignorant the way some Christians do. That's what I was trying to allude to earlier. We can't rage against the ignorant the way some Christians do. I think this is one of the greatest follies and one of the most damaging things to the name of Christ that I see out there. A, a person who should know better is raging against other Christians for being ignorant. But wasn't that you yesterday? Are we supposed to be destroying the unity in the faith? Is that our function as Christians to become like I don't know, highfalutin jackasses where all of a sudden we're judging everybody and, 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 and foaming at the mouth in rage that you, you're appalled that they don't get it, that they keep making bad decisions. So we can't be raging against the ignorant the way some Christians do. For example, perfect example, from behind this pulpit, given the more mature nature of my audience... I often come off as raging. Some of you laugh and like, look at them up there. You know, back in the day, they'd call that preaching, by the way. But if you were to see me in the company of weaker believers, I'm just the opposite. I don't rage against people that I pray for that are weak. I don't see the value in it at all. At all. I might rage against you because you know better. But I'm not going to rage against someone who's new in the faith. Wrong approach. Why? Because I know that if I exercise the same vigor I do from behind this pulpit, even knowing what I'm saying maybe at that moment is actually true, I will make weaker consciences, those that are without knowledge, stumble. They feel right, don't they? They stand before me and they're like, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I feel like this is right for me. And I can be like, how can you possibly say that? Do you know anything, you dummy? <laughs> that's not going to go very far. With someone that's new to the faith, they're probably going to run away and say, what the heck? 
Imagine God looking at us. The stuff, I mean, we pray to him, and we're like, and he's probably like, oh my God. He doesn't say it to himself, right? But you know what I mean. I get it? Yeah. <laughs> As we just noted, all of this would be sinful for me to do. To start raging against somebody that was weaker than me. It's one of the quickest ways to discern a shepherd from a teacher. A shepherd exercises divine timing in a way others cannot. It's just part of their gift. They know when to push and when not to push. I'm not saying the sheep don't buck, because you do. But anyways... 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 8.11, you still there? For though your knowledge, remember conscience equals with plus knowledge, through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. This, ought to bother, this should bother your conscience. And if it doesn't bother your conscience that you're making someone stumble, you don't have the knowledge. That's the whole point. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wonder, wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In other words, that should bother you. Christ doesn't want you to make others stumble. Another point of doctrine, if you would. And now that's inserted in your soul. Now your conscience has something to deal with. In those moments, now you can say, I'm not going to make this person stumble because it's not pleasing to my Lord. I know that they have the right to eat. They don't know it. I know they have the right to do this thing, or, or maybe, maybe they shouldn't be doing that thing. That's often the case. Um, but they don't know any better. So what am I going to do? You know, froth at the mouth and, and say, what, what's wrong with you? Don't you know better? They don't know better. That's the whole point. So instead of getting all emotional with combating consciences, go down to the data. Say, before we get all riled up over here, what do you think about this passage? What do, you about, what do you think about this one over here? What do you think about this verse or this passage over here? What do you think? You can do it with a lot of things. Homosexuality? What do you think? What does the Bible say? Don't, I'm not going to get all emotional with you about how, you know, your niece or your nephew is a homo and you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into that with you. Well, I, I'm only telling you that what the Bible says. You have a problem with that? You have a problem with the Bible? I can go like this. Thank you. If I get all emotional, it's right. No, it's wrong. No, it's right. I think it's right. I feel like it's right. I feel it's right. That goes nowhere. But that's what you see on social networking sites. Ever been on Facebook and see two idiot Christians going back and forth? It's grotesque. And everybody's stumbling everywhere. And that's what I always say to people behind the scenes. Stop it. You're making everybody on this thread stumble. And you should know better. So cut it out. Stop being suckered into satanic arguments that are make, it's making everybody stumble. People do it all the time. And it's the, it's the oldest trick. People get baited. Baited into these conversations. I get baited all the time. Well, not anymore, but used to get baited a lot into conversations. You see them coming a mile away. They start asking all these questions about how, how things feel right. 
How could a loving God? Here we go. As soon as that one comes up, here we go. How can a loving God? Where are you going with this, man? You want to talk about truth or you want to talk about your feelings? Let's go on to our next passage now in our brief survey of the human conscience through the words of the Apostle Paul. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, 25. 1 Corinthians 10, 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions. And in some ways, he's basically saying it's better not to even know. Who cares? Why even ask questions? Why bother? If it doesn't matter, don't even bother. For conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. However, he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you in, you and want you to eat, uh, wants you to, excuse me, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. So now you've got multiple consciences in view. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Paul's saying, I can eat whatever I want. But again, if it's going to make someone else's conscience stumble, if they don't have the right data about this food sacrificed to idols, then don't do it. If it's going to be a problem for them, then don't do it. If it's not a problem for them, who cares? It's not a problem for me. So really, we have been given data that we don't want to make others stumble. Paul speaks about the dynamics again between human consciences up here on the board. Here's what we're getting to. Here's what we're getting to, okay? Don't blame the conscience. This is an important topic because the deceitfulness of sin will have you do it. We'll, we'll put the emphasis and the focus on someone's conscience, how they feel something's right, even though it's not. And they want you to get sort of tangled up in consciences. But the, really, the out, the relief valve, really is just this. Here's the relief valve. If you feel something's right and they feel something's right, well, one of you's not right, correct? If they're opposing views. So we're, who's the, who's the uh, arbiter, I guess, or the, the, um, the one who can decide? This is it right here. Then say, hey, before we get all excited and, you know, ruin Super Bowl Sunday, let's go to the Bible. Let's, let's do it that way. Don't blame the conscience. We mustn't make a habit of blaming and eventually attacking another person's conscience for simply doing its job. Rather, we ought to investigate the data set said conscience is dependent upon and challenge the data, the false knowledge, not the conscience, which is a slave to it. That's how you get around it. Again, don't blame the conscience. We can't make a habit of blaming and eventually attacking another person's conscience. You want to get in a fight quick? Really, attack their conscience. Tell them there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with their conscience. Their conscience is actually functioning appropriately. It's their data. So don't attack that for simply doing its job. We ought to investigate the data set said conscience is dependent upon and challenge the data, the false knowledge. And when you do that, the beauty of it 
is if you're equipped with this, be ready to give a defense. If you're not reading your Bible, then you might as well just throw in a towel. But if you're reading your Bible, and you at least know what the Bible has to say about a subject, you can give them truth. And it really is up to the Holy Spirit at that point to insert that truth into their soul. So you're not even responsible for that either. This is one of the reasons I find, again, social media platforms so very frustrating. It's because people aren't actually interested in seeking truth, otherwise known as divine knowledge. They are stuck in the flesh, arguing for supremacy of right and wrong. They're not interested in the truth. They only want to argue about what's right and wrong. And do you understand where that is at, right? That is at the conscience level, if you would. People arguing between right and wrong. The whole affair is so misguided and emotionally charged that it becomes about merely winning an argument than actually seeking truth. That's the problem. Over here, up here on the board, don't fight over consciences. One of the most effective ways of diffusing emotional banter over right and wrong arguments is to objectively consider each party's underlying knowledge and compare it to Holy Scripture. It's that simple. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? To hell with our feelings at this point. Let's, have, let's talk about feelings after. What does the Bible say? If they refuse to read the Bible, then what are you going to do? Walk away. That's what I do. You don't want, you don't, you don't want the truth. So one of the most effective ways of diffusing emotional banter over right and wrong arguments is to objectively consider each party's underlying knowledge and compare it to Holy Scripture. This is, once again, the reason why most important, uh, one of the most important first questions you can ever ask anyone whom you find yourself entangled with in this way is very simple. Do you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? First question out of my mouth every single time. Someone wants to get into it with me, all emotional, you know, their hair sticking up. They're already jealous because I don't have any hair sticking up. Do you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that it was even authored by Him? Do you believe that, yes or no? If the answer is yes, there's an easy road before me. I just have to pull out some scripture. Go see what you're saying about this thing. It says right here that it's a sin. Or what you're saying over here that you aren't doing because it doesn't feel right. Over here it says you should. <laughs> Any questions? I mean, you can feel any way you want about it, but that's what the Bible says. That's right. Don't, don't take the bait. One of Satan's greatest tactics is to get people emotionally charged. There's no reason for it. So do you believe the Bible is inspired of the Word of God, that it was authored by Him? If the answer is no, or some variant of it, like, you know, well, it was written by men... A long time ago, so, and I go, here we go. And then you might respond simply, well, we're 
really probably never going to agree. Because I believe the, the Bible is the Word of God, and you apparently do not. So why don't we just part ways? But just know this. This is one of the last things I said on Facebook before I got out of there. I said, just know that everything that I stand for is in this Bible. And all these other religions that people are arguing about, they don't actually use the Bible. That's the difference. You can ch choose any way you want. You want to look at it's your free will decision to depart from the Holy Bible. I just want to make it known that that's what I stand for. That's what I'm seeking. I want whatever's in there to be in here. End of story. If you want something else, that's between you and the Lord. And that's the end of it. But if you say you want that same thing, then we have a place, right? We have a common ground. It's the right common ground. It's divine. The only one. At that point, we can have a conversation, and it doesn't have to be emotional. It's just about facts. What does the Bible say? What does God, what does God think about what it is that you're thinking about doing? Or what it is that you've done? What does he think? Go to 2 Corinthians 5.9. Paul often appealed to men's consciences. He knew that if they were uh, adequately equipped with knowledge, he could appeal to their, to their conscience. Just to, What do you think I do every single time I'm up here? Whenever I wield the rod or even the staff, what am I appealing to? I'm appealing to the fact that you have knowledge. That's it. And the reason it stings or it's comforting is because that knowledge affirms what I'm saying in your soul. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Therefore we, have also, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. In other words, I'd like for you to think that we're right. I'd like, to, I'd like for you to see that we are oriented to the holy God of the universe, the one that's going to judge, as we just saw in the previous verse, whether something's good or bad. So Paul appealed to the good consciences of those he was teaching. And he wanted to be in good standing in their consciences. Like, yeah, you are right. I imagine that's why you show up. All of you showed up today. You, you, you feel good about what's going to be taught through this vessel. That you believe that this vessel presents the truth. So you show up. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Paul is essentially making the distinction here between people who know better and people who don't know better. People who know better and people who don't know better. The substance of his argument is on the basis of a difference in knowledge. He's saying, I want to be in your good graces. I want you to think highly of us. I want your conscience to convict you that we're doing the right stuff. Not like these people. 
not like these people who are without knowledge and therefore think they're doing all the right things in their own way, but they're just serving the self. They're not serving the Lord. Has not, it's not founded in Holy Scripture, yada, 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 yada. I want you to think and know that we are this way and that they are that way. This is right and that's wrong. And I want your conscience to be able to sit here with true knowledge and be able to discern those things. This is right and this is wrong. It's why you guys came to this church and not the god-awful one down the street that's teaching religion right now. Because you know, you've been convicted by Holy Scripture that this is right and that's garbage. And I'm not comparing churches. I hope you know what I'm getting at. It's the example here. So the substance of his argument is on the basis of a difference in knowledge. Next, we're going to look at a verse that is likely often overlooked. And yet, like many simple statements in the Bible, it is profound. Go to Acts 23, verse 1. Acts 23, verse 1. And again, I hope in the back of your mind, you're sort of weaving all this into the deceitfulness of sin. Looking at, and maybe later on today, uh, looking at the different angles that sin can use to exploit a lot of these things. And you can see that that's what Paul was defending against in his writing. The exploitation, uh, the perversion of something as fundamental as conscience and uh, knowledge. Acts 23, verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now think about that. He's the guy who killed Christians, right? What is he saying, though? He's like, my conscience was always good. A perfectly good conscience. Up here on the board. This should be encouraging for you, so you don't feel completely beat down. Paul defended his conscience. The Jewish leaders were infuriated at the possibility that Paul maintained a clear conscience, having defected from their religion to, quote, the way. This is possible for the person whose false knowledge is replaced with the divine. So overarching all of this basically is something, and it's echoes of like James 4.17, the one who knows the right thing to do, it's accounted sin. Paul wrote in Romans, it wasn't a sin until the law told me it was a sin. Right? So there's a certain um, reality here, there's an overarching theme in the Bible when it comes to your good conscience, that relieves the good conscience of a certain responsibility for knowledge. In other words, you can think you're doing the right thing, and God lets it fly. It may not be good in His eyes. You may think you're doing the right thing. Like Paul said, I've always had a clear conscience. My whole life. When I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, in my head, I was doing the right stuff. Jesus knocked me down, straightened me out, now I have a good conscience now. Now I have new knowledge, truth. What does that mean for you? It means that you're all growing. It means that you shouldn't walk away from a message like this, completely condemned, with your shoulders rounded, and your head hung low. Because you don't have the knowledge yet. You're not where someone like a Lois is, or a John Gardner. I don't mean to be puffing individuals. People are like, what about me? You know, whatever. Joey's already acting, got an attitude. 
Oh, if you could see his face. Um, right? You may not be where these other people are. Relax. It's okay. You don't come out of the womb a spiritual giant. It takes a long time. Some of you are still babes in Christ. Still only able to digest milk. Not meat yet. Do you know what I mean? So you're the ones we have to protect because you're weak and we don't want to make you stumble. I'm doing that right now, by the way. I don't want you to stumble. I want you to know that God sees your conscience and then your free will decision to abide by it. And there's a lot of emphasis on that in the Bible. We'll get to that a little bit more. But this is a really good thing to think about that Paul had. He said, my conscience is not be good. Obviously, I was misinformed. Like you morons who I'm talking to right now. But I'm not anymore. And my conscience is still good. Remember, the human conscience is a slave, so in the strictest sense, it cannot be blamed. It is a person's knowledge that is at fault. Conscience is just like a computer. It's dumb. It goes in, it goes out, it's right. Something goes in, it makes a decision, it goes out. It's about data. It's about knowledge. It's the person's knowledge that is at fault. That's bad. I don't know of anywhere in the Bible where the human conscience doesn't function as I'm describing it here. It always functions. I think it's right to do this thing. You might say, but what happens when someone consciously makes a decision that's wrong? That's misusing words. They've chosen, which comes after the conscience. The conscience convicts between right and wrong, and then a person can choose to do what's right or choose to do what's wrong. And that's why when you go out and you do something that you know is wrong, you're haunted by your own conscience. But the conscience is pretty, like, innocent in a way. It's just functional. All right. The person's knowledge that is at fault. Again, I don't know anywhere in the Bible where the human conscience doesn't function the way I'm describing it. Even when it is defiled, quote-unquote, the context reveals that it is defiled as a function of rotten data, bad doctrine, false knowledge, etc. In other words, the whole ship is defiled. In fact, the Bible teaches us this very thing, pointing towards that which pertains to information and knowledge, namely the mind. You see, it's our mind that we have to protect. It's what we let in. It's why I keep telling you, please, please, please. Whatever's in here, get it in here. You do that and you're on your way. Because your conscience will respond. Holy Spirit will educate you, will put it in your soul, and then he'll convict you with your conscience. Say, yeah, that's right. He'll encourage you, right? That's right. You're good. I'm with you. So, so much of what we're learning here and so much of where the deceitfulness of sin comes in is this distinction between the conscience and getting emotional even and just base knowledge. We'll see more of this, that in a moment about the mind, but for now, go to uh, Acts 24, 14. 
Acts 24, verse 14. Acts 24, 14. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. It means it's truth. Remember, the law is perfect, a.k.a. in accordance with truth and knowledge, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. You see, that's what I was talking about. Just do your best to maintain a blameless conscience. What does that mean? Keep reading your Bible. Keep seeking the truth. In other words, Paul was stating that above all else, he wanted always to function in the highest level of integrity to what he concluded was truth. And as a side note on this, just a reflection, this is how a person can sleep like a baby at night on the presumption that they are doing right while functioning on bad data. Right? I mean, it's like the lament of, you know, in some of the wisdom books, um, why, do the, why do the wicked prosper? Like they seem to be sleeping like babies at night. Bad data. So this is how a person can sleep like a baby. But let's keep it to ourselves. Let's keep it to believers. That's an extreme example. This is how a person can sleep like a baby at night on the presumption that they're doing right while functioning on bad data. And in the meantime, across the street, a person with good data can't sleep at all because their good conscience haunts them for doing the same thing the first person is doing. One's sleeping like a baby, one's up all night. Same thing. One has data, one doesn't. Perfect example is with, and I hate to be uh, bringing up a downer this morning, but is with like abortion. Some women sleep well over it, seemingly for a time at least, while some women know that it know better and it will haunt them, maybe for the rest of their lives. Who knows? But how is it that some women can do it and have no problem with it, seemingly? And some women, uh, even after they find out, are haunted by it. Let's look at the extreme polar end of depravity now. I'll go to Titus 1.15. Titus 1.15. I remember being taught early in the faith that, that, uh, that the baby wasn't even uh, a baby. That it wasn't murder. That's what I was taught. I, obviously, I learned, but that's what I was taught. And uh, just having that in my brain for a while upsets me. Just probably having shared that as what I thought was truth upsets me. Titus 1.15 To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. This is important here. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In other words, they have no good data. Nothing is pure. Both, but both their mind and their conscience 
are defiled. So now you have the entire infrastructure. You have the place where knowledge exists in the mind, and then you have the slave to it, the conscience. The entire infrastructure is completely defiled. That is the polar end called the unregenerate person. Because there's, no, there's nothing, any, there's no good in them. They're born totally depraved. All the data is bad. It's all polluted with self-righteousness, with antichrist thinking, anti-God. That's how we're born. We're born polluted. So all our data is polluted, which means it's bad, which means our conscience is polluted. Because how does a, how does a conscience trying to do its job ever do its job well? You don't even make good decisions. You always make decisions what? For self. Because all the data is for self. <laughs> Up here on the board. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Here we have the connection between the mind, the keeper of knowledge, and the conscience, that which depends upon it. If the mind is defiled, the conscience follows. I hope you see what's going on here. Again, we have the connection between the mind and the conscience. If the mind is defiled, the conscience follows. This is why we sometimes struggle with folks in our lives that believe and maybe adamantly defend awfulness. They say, but it's right. It's a woman's body. She gets to decide. No, that's God's body. And so is the little one that's inside there now. Even though it's little, little, little. I think God has to decide. I think it's God's right to decide. But they will defend you tooth and nail. How can that possibly be? And some of them are probably proclaiming to be Christians. Like I was when I was misinformed. I wasn't less of a Christian. As far as I know, I was still saved, but I was misinformed. You see? That's how it works. Bad data. Didn't do my own research. Took someone else's word for it, like a moron. Some of you are just as guilty at that as I am. Always taking someone else's word for it. If there's only one word I want you to take of mine, ever, if you were to leave here tomorrow and never come back, it's this. Read your Bible. That's all I want. I don't want you to have my knowledge. I want you to have your own knowledge about this book. Pastor Ed doesn't set anybody free. Can't even set himself free. Only this can, you see? It's about knowledge. Get it. Seek it. So this is why we sometimes struggle with folks in our lives that believe and defend awfulness. To us, it seems like a purposeful affront to the Lord uh, that we know from the Holy Bible, and yet in their weakness, they say they are Christian too. This is the picture of the person with bad knowledge and therefore a defiled mind, and of course subsequently a defiled conscience. So they will fight you tooth and nail because they think they're right. But they have bad knowledge, which is why I alluded to, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Okay, let's go to the Bible then. What you'll find is most people that defend things like that 
have not actually done the work themselves. Some of the greatest arguments before I was too smart and, to, and wise to know I shouldn't get into the argument happened on, with people that refused that didn't know anything about the Bible. They said they did, though. Do you know the Bible? I do. Where's the scripture that says what you say? That's what, the first thing I should have said, but I didn't. I would say something like, no, you don't. Here we go. Right? Because it's dumb. You don't know the Bible. I know the Bible. I know the Bible. How about we just go to the Bible and see who knows what? What we see in Holy Scripture is that it's not the conscience, but whatever false data and knowledge that exists in the mind that is the source of defilement. Up here on the board, Isaiah 47.10, part B says this, Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded, perverted, and warped you. It not say your conscience. It says your wisdom and your knowledge. They have deluded, perverted, warped you. That's where it starts, you see. That's the root system. What do you hold as true? Because you know what you were born with, a bunch of garbage. And it has to get thrown out, right? Throw this out, throw this out, throw this out, throw this out. Replace it with the right stuff. For example, we can't blame the human conscience for something like pride, for it has its chief place in the mind. Go to Colossians 2.18. Hold your thumb there. Hold your thumb there. Go to Colossians 2.18. Pride, that's right, has its chief place in the mind. Colossians 2.18. Some of you have been, you know, before Christianity, you were trained up by the world. I, can, I, I, can, I speak as a man now, so I'm, I apologize, lady. But we were, just, we were just told that we were trained to be like conquerors and to like gather unto ourselves, right? All, look at all the heroes in the movies and stuff. It's always some dude, right? with like an eight-pack and muscles, and he's always the king. That's the guy we look after, not the little plebe dude, the king. We all want to be the king, like Spartan, you know, that kind of a thing. He's got 27 wives, right, and they're all ridiculous, right? And he's got, he's got money, and he's got prestige, and he's got all the adoration of all the men too, right? All this stuff. Where do we, what the heck? That's what we're trained up to think. And that's good. Oh, that's not good. That's not good. We're not supposed to be those kinds of conquerors. Jesus Christ is our conqueror. Colossians 2.18 Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions, he has seen, inflated without cause, inflated without cause by his what? Fleshly mind. Where does it start? In the mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. You see, he's clinging to bad 
knowledge. He's clinging to a fleshly mind. A fleshly mind is that mind that's dominated by bad data. And in his eyes, he thinks he's doing all the right stuff. What do you think the king's doing? What do you think like, the guy just described is doing? You think he's doing the right thing? Of course, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks it's, you know, he should get you know, all the things he's getting because he's that awesome. Because he's proven himself. He's fought his way to the top. King of the mountain. Remember that, guys? When you're young, before everybody became like these uh, doughy nerds? You remember that? King of the mountain. That was part of our training. Who's got the king of the Muckle. It wasn't even football. It was just, hey, throw that guy the football and nine people jump on him. And if you could survive it, you know. Let's, let's tie a rope around a bull's testicles and jump on its back and see if we can last eight seconds. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with people, right? And if you last eight seconds, people are like, ah, you're the man, right? You're like, what are we trying to prove? That's fleshly data. Ride a, ride a, a, a poor animal for eight seconds and you're the man. No, you're not. You're a jerk. What did that thing ever do to you? No, seriously. What? That's fleshly thinking. You think it's right? Go down to Texas right now. They think it's right. Go to Spain. They think it's right to stab a bull until it's dead with a little red cape. Nobody has a problem with that. That makes me sick. I hope you're seeing the nuances here. For they are the very platform that the human flesh uses to deceive us. Back to Titus 1.15. You were holding your thumb, I hope. <clears throat> Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess... To know God, but their deeds, but by their deeds they deny Him. You see? I know God. You kind of don't. We have the same God. We don't, actually. Your mind and your conscience is defiled. I don't care what you profess, but you don't know my God because my God is this God here. And your God looks nothing like and you, you admit, maybe, that you don't even read your Bible. That Christianity is some morphed version with some awfully watered-down version of the gospel that feels good on a Sunday. That's your Christianity. That's your profession of knowing God. Is that you go to church on Sunday. You sing about 28 songs. You listen to some moron. Maybe it's a chick, excuse me, ladies, standing behind a pulpit. I don't mean to be greedy. You know what I'm saying. That came out because I get angry. I apologize, ladies. You're not chicks. You're lovely ladies. Some lady who shouldn't be there is standing on a pulpit, lying to everybody, you know, for a whopping five or ten minutes. They tell a couple of stories about their poodle <laughs> and how God loves them. Right? Then they, then they, then they marry two gay people. You follow what I'm getting at, people? 
These people are just lips, they're just professing. They have no real knowledge, therefore they don't know God. You have to know the God. This is his revelation to us. This is it. That's why I say just keep going back. Keep going back. If you don't do this, this is how sin gets you the worst. If you depend on, you know, what feels good. What feels good is based on knowledge. What if you have no knowledge? Then it's up in the air what feels good, right? And you might argue, argue with a guy like me till you're blue in the face. But you got, it's not based on anything that's actually true. It's based on garbage that you were born with or garbage that you saw on Sparta. Whatever the name of that movie was. Or for you ladies, I don't know, some romance novel? So, you know, I, mean, I, don't know if I've, I don't know if I've ever met a new woman believer that actually understands what love looks like, what marriage is supposed to be like. They're all confused because they've been watching, you know, I'm king of the world! Sorry, Andrew. Andrew's favorite movie of all time. The Titanic, right? I think that's what love is. No, it's not. That's ridiculous. That was love. She would have never let him go, Andrea. <laughs> I love you, but I can only hold this huge diamond on your hand. See you later, Jack. <laughs> Good luck down there. <laughs> Anyways. I gotta stop here, huh? We gotta do communion still. No matter how bad fruit comes about being born, it's still bad in God's eyes. That's something we need to know as well. Bad data, a defiled mind is incapable of producing anything pleasing to God. So I guess I'll step back and then we'll get ready for a communion service. To net this all out, what is the Spirit saying to us? Simple. Pay attention. Pay attention to that which you believe to be true. And compare daily the knowledge you have against Holy Scripture, the very fountain of truth. Which implies doing as your faithful pastor has exhorted you to do for years and years now. And I guess I'll leave you with this. You ready? Ta-da! I'm serious. I'll be a happy camper in heaven. If I get run over tomorrow and I'm in heaven... If I, if I know that you're doing this, I'm happy. I, my job, it took me 10 years to convince you people, a decade, to get to that point, to where most of you are like, yep, it's true. I'm good. Maybe I should quit, DJ. Ed McMahon. He's like, don't do it, Johnny. Still got a few good years left. <laughs> you know what I'm getting at, though? Read your Bible. Just read your Bibles. Amen? All right, let's get ready for communion service, guys.
when we uh, when we read our Bibles like the Spirit's been encouraging us to do, we're basically dining on the very bread of life. It's our sustenance. It's everything to us. This church, this vessel, your family, um, your animals, they don't sustain you. This life doesn't sustain you. The Lord does. And you can't survive without the bread of life, without the truth from the Word of God. That's the whole idea, that life is in that activity. And so when we partake of communion, this is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the ability to have fellowship and commune with him that way. He wants us to remember the significance of doing this thing. And honestly, read your Bible. Every time we partake, we should say to ourselves, I get to, I get to partake of my Lord. I have the most intimate fellowship with my Lord, my best friend, my perfect husband, I get to have perfect, unadulterated communion with him just by opening up my Bible. Where do you get that in this world? You may have the nicest spouse that ever lived, but they don't even come close to that. Amen? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup and remember his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for humbling us. Thank you for feeding us. Thank you for reminding us of the things that truly matter in this life, Lord, and thank you for equipping us. Thank you for giving us knowledge and understanding so that we might make good decisions with our conscience and bring glory to you because ultimately, Father, that's what's pleasing in your sight. This is all we want, Father. We just appreciate and love you for your patience. We just ask for more of it as we continue to press on in our own lives, as we take the things we've learned back home with us, out to a world that's just decaying by the moment, Father. We just earnestly ask for this and we pray for this. In Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.